Hello and welcome to the December 2011 edition of Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, as usual, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes, which is the most comprehensive monthly summary of all the legal, latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And before we get started, a disclaimer is probably in order, which is that each of us in our capacity speaks for ourselves, not for either our organization or our institution or anyone else for that matter. Is that a fair disclaimer, Art? That's a fair disclaimer, Brad. Okay. With that disclaimer out of the way, and remember it, uh, we're going to get started. Uh, There'll be a test on the disclaimer <laughs> at the end of the podcast. Um, we're going to get started talking, as usual, about the lead story uh, in the issue of Law Notes, this, in this case, the lead story in the December issue. And that story concerns the latest iteration of the Prop 8 case in California. Uh, the latest case is the uh, California Supreme Court has unanimously ruled that the proponents of Prop 8, the voter initiative that most of you are probably familiar with, that amended the California Constitution in 2008 to provide that only the marriage of one man and one woman will be recognized or valid in California, that these folks have standing as a matter of state law to represent the state's interest in defending the constitutional amendment from a federal constitutional challenge. Um, Art, before we get into the details of this latest decision, let me ask you um, to take a step back and do the impossible, which is to briefly summarize the winding road the issue of same-sex marriage has traveled in California. In California. Well, I would start that winding road back in the late 1990s, actually, when the political leaders in California and in the gay movement, in the gay legal movement, came to the conclusion that the correct strategy to win same-sex marriage in California was legislative. That is, they were not planning to file a lawsuit. Uh, they were not planning to ask the courts to deal with this issue at all. They were planning to go step by step, get a domestic partnership statute, get it expanded, then get the legislature to go for marriage. Uh, the problem is that the reaction to the domestic partnership statute was a referendum that put a provision in the California Code saying that marriage was only between a man and a woman. Uh, then the subsequent acts by the legislature to pass the same-sex marriage law were vetoed by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger on the grounds that the legislature couldn't overrule a proposition. Well, and, and – oh, it wasn't on sancti sanctity of marriage grounds, no. which is good. Considering no, he, what, said, he yeah. said he felt that the legislature didn't have the authority to simply pass a statute overruling a statute that had been adopted by referendum. Uh, and there's a lot to that given the way California set up. And the reason the legislative path was deemed the appropriate path in California was because it's so easy for a voter initiative to amend the Constitution of well, the state. Well, and we see that in the reverse right. direction, and, as we'll get And to. we see that in the Prop 8 case. Uh, so what happened was uh, that they were going along this uh, legislative path, trying to get the legislature to pass a same-sex marriage bill, expanding the domestic partnership uh, bill, and then in uh, 2004, after the Massachusetts Supreme Court declared a constitutional right for same-sex couples to marry in Massachusetts, uh, the idea really caught fire, and the mayor of San Francisco at that time directed the uh, city clerk to start issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples, and the state attorney general brought an action to enjoin that, and the case got up to the California Supreme Court which said, uh, hey, guys, if you have a problem about constitutionality of denying marriage to same-sex couples, why not file a lawsuit? And so a lawsuit was filed. Uh, all the major LGBT legal organizations joined in one or more aspects. There, there actually were four different lawsuits, including one brought by the city of San Francisco. And they were all combined in a case called in-ray marriage cases, which got to the California Supreme Court. 
And in May 2008, the California Supreme Court declared that as a matter of state constitutional law, same-sex couples had the right to marry. Now, opponents of same-sex marriage in California expected this decision from the court. The court's oral argument in the case was webcast live. Everyone saw it. Everyone can count. Everyone knew what was coming. They got to work on an initiative. And the purpose of their initiative was to take that referendum statute that they passed back in 2000 and put it in the state constitution as an amendment. That's Prop 8, which passed at the general election in November 2008. So same-sex couples were able to marry in California for several months between June when the Supreme Court's decision went into effect and November 5th, Election Day. Immediately after uh, Prop 8 passed, a lawsuit was filed to challenge its enactment uh, on grounds that it was an improper uh, revision of the Constitution as opposed to a mere amendment, and therefore the procedures for putting on the ballot were inadequate. The California Supreme Court rejected that in the spring of 2009, and the same week that the California Supreme Court announced its decision, the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which had been formed uh, to combat Prop 8, filed its federal district court lawsuit in the uh, Northern District of California, San Francisco Federal Court, where it was assigned to Judge Vaughn Walker, a closeted gay man with a same-sex partner. Uh, Judge Walker conducted prolonged discovery, supervised prolonged discovery, and then had a trial. And finally, in the summer of 2010, ruled that Prop 8 violated the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. Now, the case had been brought by AFER, AFER, the American Foundation for Equal Rights. Which is the organization most people would associate, you know, associate, would associate with, uh, with this case. David Boys and... Well, they hired David Boys and, and Ted, Ted Olson. Olson. Right. They hired David Boys and Ted Olson, two of the nation's leading appellate advocates who had opposed each other in Bush v. Gore in 2000. Uh, they did a brilliant job with the trial, and they won uh, a ruling from Judge Walker that uh, Prop 8 was unconstitutional. So it's interesting to note that Governor Schwarzenegger and Attorney General Jerry Brown had both been opposed to Prop 8, and they both took the position that they would not defend it. They were the named defendants. They were the lead named defendants in the case. They weren't going to defend it. So the group that had formed in favor of Prop 8, who had drafted it and gotten it on the ballot through their petitions and then spent a lot of money uh, advertising it and campaigning for it, uh, a group called protectmarriage.com and a bunch of individuals who were uh, spearheading the move, they had petitioned Judge Walker to intervene as defendants in the case because they said nobody is defending Prop 8. The governor won't defend it. The attorney general won't defend it. We will defend and it. And can we – we're going to – I know we're going to talk more yeah. about this, but when there's this idea of no one's defending it, um, I know it seems sort of natural to – to uh, to indicate that well that seems like that should be concerning that's no one's defending it what why exactly is it such a big deal if the elected officials you know who are elected by the same you know the same constituency who approved the referendum but they are elected officials who are subject to accountability at the ballot box why is it such a big deal if they decide in their wisdom that they're not going to devote state resources to defending it well it's it's a big deal because the California Constitution guarantees the right of the people to amend the Constitution directly, to bypass the legislature, to bypass elected officials, to go out and get signatures and put a proposed constitutional amendment on the ballot, and to campaign for it. 
and so the fact that nobody was mounting a defense is concerning because a majority of the voters voted for it. And certainly they are entitled to be represented, or so is the theory. Uh, and so uh, Judge Walker allowed them to intervene. On the other hand, there was another group of uh, potential parties who sought to intervene, and those were the LGBT legal organizations who were very unhappy about this lawsuit being filed, who had opposed it being filed, who said it's not time to go to the federal courts, it's not time to take a case to the U.S. Supreme Court on same-sex marriage. Well, they had been overruled by AFER, which went ahead anyway. And so then they petitioned to become uh, intervening plaintiffs, co-plaintiffs, and AFER opposed that. And Judge Walker turned them down. He said, you can be amicus curiae. You can file friend of the court briefs, but I agree with AFER that you don't have a right to participate in the prosecution of this case. Although he did allow the city of San Francisco to intervene on the plaintiff's side. Uh, so uh, the LGBT movement groups like Lambda Legal, ACLU, National Center for Lesbian Rights, who had played an important role in the original marriage case decided by the California Supreme Court were excluded from this case as active participants. And have we, um, in your time reading and writing and witnessing basically all this history, can you think of another example of such a major uh, case impacting the LGBT community, uh, basically having uh, essentially a closed door to many of the same groups that the group, the very groups that have been advocating for this, th th these types of rights over the years? Well, actually, the cases that have gone to the Supreme Court on uh, LGBT rights have mainly been brought by the movement groups, or at least they have gotten involved with them at some point along the way. Uh, that they should be excluded in this way was rather unprecedented, but given the history of how this litigation was brought, not unexpected. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, the proponents of Proposition 8, protectmarriage.com, and the individual proponents were allowed to participate, and in fact, they mounted the primary defense. They hired a law firm, they hired an experienced appellate litigator to go up against Olson and Boys, but to no avail because uh, Judge Walker ruled against them. So then the question was, could anyone appeal this to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, where, which is where an appeal would go from the district court in San Francisco? And the governor said, I'm happy with the decision, I'm not going to appeal. Uh, the attorney general said, just fine by me. <laughs> you know, by now it was, a, it was a different set of players, of course. It's, uh, it, it becomes uh, Governor Brown and Attorney General Harris. So it's a different group, but they also, uh, they weren't inclined to defend Prop 8. So the proponents who were intervening defendants sought to appeal. And that, that takes us pretty that close takes to, us where we are to where we are now. Uh, so they sought to appeal, and the response of AFER's attorneys was, hey, you guys can't appeal. You don't have standing to appeal. You don't have a particularized individual interest in the case, and you don't represent the state of California. The governor and the attorney general represent the state of California. So you have no standing. And Judge Walker uh, indicated some sympathy with this position. Uh, it, it, certainly when he was asked to stay his decision pending an appeal, otherwise same-sex couples could start marrying again in California, and uh, he wasn't inclined to do so and noted in his uh, declination to do so that, after all, it looks like there's no appellant who has standing, or at least mm -hmm. that seems to be arguably the case. So, so this is where the Ninth Circuit yeah, steps in. The Ninth in. Circuit steps in, and uh, at the instance of the proponents, they granted a, an injunction pending 
uh, ruling on the merits. And then, and then they certify they certify a question, right? right at this stage. Well, they held an oral argument uh, just almost exactly a month ago, uh, a year ago, mm-hmm. December of uh, 2010. They held an oral argument, which they divided in two parts. The first part of the oral argument was about the standing issue. Uh, so proponents were put to the test of whether they could satisfy Article Three of the U.S. Constitution, which says that federal courts can only decide real cases and controversies between parties who have a real personal stake in the issues. And they're trying to persuade the court that they have a personal stake and that uh, they should be allowed to represent the voters who passed Prop 8. Uh, and the argument on the other side was that there's nothing in California law that specifically says that anyone other than the governor and the attorney general represent the state or perhaps the head of a state agency that gets sued, but certainly a government official would have standing to uh, to protect uh, against the constitutional attack of a state constitutional amendment or statute. Uh, and in looking at the Supreme Court case law on this, we don't have a direct firm precedent for the U.S. Supreme Court But in a prior case involving an Arizona initiative amendment, uh, the Supreme Court had suggested that the question whether state law would authorize an initiative proponent to defend their measure in court uh, could be a significant issue in analyzing the question. So the California Supreme Court uh, decided, let's ask, the uh, rather the Ninth Circuit said, let's ask the California Supreme Court what they think about the right of initiative proponents to defend their measure in a subsequent federal constitutional suit. And so the case went to the California Supreme Court, which got briefs from the parties, held oral argument, and issued its decision on November 17th, thus making the front page of the December issue of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes as the most important decision of the month. Exactly. So. And, and, and in this case, the, the court, to, to circle back to uh, right. a discussion we had a little bit earlier, I mean, the court seems especially troubled by the idea that state officials could have a virtual veto over the, an amendment um, that was passed by the people if they could basically accomplish through what couldn't be accomplished at the ballot box but could be accomplished through inaction, essentially, that right. they could, through inaction, allow uh, the voters' will, so to speak, to be, um, to be circumvented. Right. I think the, the rationale of the court's decision here on standing is – someone's got to represent the voters who passed that amendment. And since the governor won't do it and the attorney general won't do it, we will allow the proponents to do it. Uh, At least for purposes of state law, we will say that they're authorized to do it. And they rooted this decision both in the California constitutional provisions about the initiative and also in uh, the past history in the California courts because a lot of initiatives – either statute initiatives or constitutional amendment initiatives have been subject to litigation in the California courts going back decades. And they said, looking back on that situation, we can't find any case where proponents were not allowed to intervene to help defend their measure. So as a matter of California law in practice, as well as in their construction of the provisions of the Constitution, which give proponents a special role to play, in the whole process of adopting uh, statutes and, and amendments by initiative, they said, we think as a matter of California law, they have standing. But that doesn't end the question. And uh, the Ninth Circuit panel, upon receiving this decision from the California Supreme Court, uh, asked the parties to submit briefs and to argue how this decision bears on the Ninth Circuit deciding whether for purposes of federal law 
the proponents have standing. And in the briefs that have been filed, the uh, uh, attorneys for AFER argue, well, there were two questions certified to the California Supreme Court, not just whether proponents as a matter of state law have a right to defend their uh, proposition, but also whether they have an individual particularized interest in doing so. And usually for the Article Three analysis, that's the key question. And, 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 the, and, and that's the, the question the court ducked in yeah, this the, case. Yeah, the court ultimately punts on the particularized uh, yeah. interest question. I was right. wondering uh, as, we really close, yeah, as we close the discussion, what – You've indicated you think it's odd. So, yes. wh- what is the point? What is the significance of the court deciding, deci- making its decision, um, and, and being very specific that it's not reaching the issue of a particularized? Well, courts courts like to decide as few questions as they have to decide, especially right. when you, they're you given always, a hot you, potato you, case. You always answer. You yes. always say that when I ask yes. you this type of question. But what do you think that? Well, what are they up to with? Well, that? they're saying let's decide this case on the less controversial ground. But they try to cover their tracks by pointing out that the Ninth Circuit, in its own opinion, certifying the questions, had indicated its inclination that it was likely to find standing if the California Supreme Court said that as a matter of state law, the proponents had standing. Uh, But uh, the the attorneys from AFER are arguing in their brief uh, that uh, actually the more important question for federal purposes is the particularized individual interest. I don't think they really want to win that argument. I think they want this case to go to the merits. And the reason is they brought this suit in the first case hoping to get to the Supreme Court. And the only way they get to the Supreme Court is if the proponents have standing to place the merits before the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and, so, and, and I guess that goes to the question of – I was going to ask you what happens next. I mean one yes. thing that can happen next, as you indicated, the Ninth Circuit has already heard argument on the merits. They right. devoted half the oral argument to – the sort of the procedural question and the other to, to the merits. The Ninth Circuit could rule at any point, right, on, on well, the merits of this issue without first, asking for further briefing It's or possible. Anything? Well, they've received briefs on the standing issue. They might decide to hold argument on the standing issue. You know, they could decide to do that. Uh, if they decide not to hold argument on the standing issue and find that the proponents have standing, they could move directly to a decision on the merits without further argument or briefing if they want to because the question's already been briefed and already been argued a, a year ago. Uh, which means that there could be a decision for the Ninth Circuit within the next year or even a few months, depending how long they've been devoting attention to this. Maybe they just put it on the back burner and haven't been thinking about it while they waited for the California Supreme Court. That's possible. But uh, no matter what a three-judge panel decides in this, it's going to go further Mm -hmm. because the losing party will petition for rehearing or hearing on bank, which would be by a panel of 11 judges in the Ninth Circuit, and whoever loses there will petition the Supreme Court most likely. Uh, and so this could get to the Supreme Court within the next few years. And the Supreme Court, what would they do? Well, <laughs> we're going to leave it there. That's there's, for another day. There's about 12 more or probably 100 more things we could yeah. talk about with respect to this case. But we're going we're gonna to leave it there. We'll take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a case that's been getting lots of media attention a lawsuit brought against the organizers of the Gay Softball World Series for a rule that limited the number of non-openly LGBT players that could compete on each team. We'll take a break and be right back. We are back discussing our second case on the podcast. Uh, It's the case of Apilado versus North American Gay Amateur Athletic Alliance. 
or the organizers of the Gay Softball World Series. It's a case out of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. And there they ruled that this athletic organization, which is a gay athletic organization, uh, the rule capping the number of non-openly LGBT players on each softball team is protected under the First Amendment as expressive association that outweighs any state interest in eradicating discrimination. Uh, by way of background, the plaintiffs here were a group of players whose team was eventually disqualified from play in the, in the World Series for violating the rule, and they brought suit alleging that the rule unlawfully discriminated against them based on perceived or actual sexual orientation in violation of the Washington law against discrimination. That, that law, broadly speaking, prohibits discrimination uh, in public accommodations on the basis of, among other things, sexual orientation. All right, um, this case settled just as Law Notes was going to press, although we did manage to, to get news of it into the issue. And we'll get to the, the details of that settlement. But first, let's start by giving our listeners just some brief background uh, on the idea of an organization having the right to limit their membership at all. Yeah, and, and the irony of this, of course, is that the leading precedent is a gay rights case that went to the Supreme Court in 2000 involving the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, who had uh, expelled James Dale, who was an assistant scout leader in New Jersey, when they found out that he was the president of the gay student organization at Rutgers. And uh, the scouts took the position that it was inconsistent with their expressive function and their role as a model for young boys to have an openly gay gay rights advocate as an assistant scoutmaster. Uh, the New Jersey Supreme Court decided that against them saying that New Jersey's law against discrimination would trump any free expression right uh, that the Boy Scouts might uh, might claim in that case. But the U.S. Supreme Court reversed in a 5-4 to four decision. And in that case, by the way, James Dale was represented by Lambda Legal and, in fact, by Evan Wolfson in the Supreme Court, who is now the uh, director of Freedom to Marry. So uh, the Supreme Court in that 5-4 to four decision said that if an organization – has an expressive function beyond its other functions. That is, that it is intended to communicate a message to its members and to the public. It can have some control over that by excluding people who would contradict or distract from its message. Can, can you get into the heads of the five to four majority and, yeah. and posit whether the writers, the, those who joined in that decision, imagined a day when this decision would actually be relied on by an LGBT organization to potentially try to exclude... Well, non-members of the community from alleged non-members of the community. I, I don't think they'd be troubled by that because, in fact, they relied heavily on a prior gay rights case involving the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Boston, uh, where the organizers of the St. Patrick's Day Parade didn't want to allow a gay Irish group to march under their own banner in the parade. So, you know, it, it goes one way, it goes the other way, and the general principle holds that under the First Amendment, the Supreme Court has identified a right of expressive association, which means that people can be excluded from an organization, from membership or from participation in a public event, if their inclusion would sort of hijack the message. And, uh, and the court here actually pays great attention to that, as it obviously should, given the precedent you speak about, which is that in this case, the organization is basically saying that given all sorts of historical reasons, including some of the homophobia and other um, other sort of non-inviting type of situations that um, – and, and the stereotypes about, of, of, about right, gay men. Of, of LGBT folks right. playing competitive sports, that part of their mission was to promote the idea that there can be gay athletes and to provide a welcoming 
um, a welcoming avenue for that. And that, as the court said, I'll read it to you and get your response, that forced inclusion of straight athletes would distract from and diminish those efforts, referring to the mission of this organization. But they allow up to two per team. Well, that's <laughs> – well, Which I guess is the ringer's rule. Yeah, well, you, know, you need a good pitcher, you get some straight person. Well, I mean there's there's an undercurrent of you, – yeah. you, you joke and that is a joke, right. I know um, – but there was in the factual record this this notion out there that this team there were rumors that basically they were ringers and by ringers they meant straight players who were particularly good. I mean I guess they could have been straight players who were particularly bad. But in this yeah. case, what they mean is is that they were very good. So by definition, straight players are particularly well. Good. This is this is what this the, is the stereotype yeah, we're the, trying the, to counter. The, right? It's hard to yeah. talk about this case with actually without actually buying in ac- accidentally to some of the stereotypes of both straights and gays. As someone who's played on a gay softball. Right team as well, um, which is myself, I can see how this all sort of played out. Um, but we, we should get to also some of the, uh, there was a lot going on here factually in terms of whether the players that were being challenged in terms of their participation were genuinely, you know, quote unquote, straight athletes or whether their sexual orientation was in fact a little bit more complicated than that. And we'll get to that in a second. But broadly speaking, so you have the right, if it's for an expressive purpose, it's key to that expressive purpose to exclude certain members despite the discrimination statute. But I wanted to ask you, in, in this case, they cite to cases, the, 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 the plaintiffs here cite to cases from the Supreme Court and other places in which Rotary Clubs, for example, are, are not allowed to exclude women. Well, actually, it was, it was the JCs, okay. uh, the Junior Chamber of Commerce, which used to be an all-male organization, and they were challenged by women. And, and what's the difference? Uh, and, well, the Supreme Court, in analyzing the organization, said the JCs they may, to some extent, be an expressive association, but what they're expressing has nothing to do with the gender of their participants. They said the JCs was an organization that was supposed to help people break into the business community by providing a forum for young business people to uh, socialize and meet each other and network. So and there's nothing particularly sort. male about right, that. That, that uh, admitting women wouldn't change whatever message they had if they had a message. It was a business association, and so the court said that the strong public policy against discrimination based on sex in the business world, uh, as embodied in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, as embodied in state civil rights acts uniformly throughout the country, uh, was more important than some incidental benefit of having a boys' club, in, in essence, mm-hmm. uh, in the business community. Uh, and in fact, that, uh, that would detract from achieving the goal of non-discrimination. Uh, whereas in a case like this, uh, they would be saying that the composition of these teams is part of the message. It, I mean, one way to phrase it is what is a gay softball team without gay players? I mean, right. that might be one way to ask the question. Right. And what do they do in the locker room after games? Okay. But, that, uh, well, that's, 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 that's purely Art field. Leonard. I have that's nothing to do with that. That's field. <laughs> but I, I do yeah, what wanna... they do is they practice, practice, practice. Um, there's a lot of reasons this case gets a lot of attention, and we'll continue yes. to talk about some of them. Um, but one of them is the, the attorneys involved in this right. case. And here, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which is a, a well-known national legal organization which is committed to advancing uh, the civil and human rights of LGBT people and their families, um, they represented the plaintiffs in this case, which put them in a position of being an LGBT organization, being on the opposite side of the of the V, so to speak, against a organization who has some, obviously, connection to the LGBT community, and in fact, it's relates to their mission. And I was wondering if you can give me a sense of 
again, what's whether, going on here, right? <laughs> well, what's going on, yeah. some of the reasons, and I think we can explore some of those, and they're obvious from the facts here, but I think that is worthy of pausing on for a second to, th- to talk about. Well, one, one of the things that I think may have impressed them, and I'm just speculating here, is that when they met with the plaintiffs, and the plaintiffs said, well, we're bisexual, and that is a position that the plaintiffs have taken. They've said that they were wrongly excluded. Uh, and if you look at uh, what NCLR is about, it's about protecting the rights of lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgender people. And bisexuals are entitled to representation, too. I would think also that, that the people at NCLR would be very concerned about the way these players were treated, well, which we haven't discussed yeah, yet. Yeah, and let, let's jump to that. And, and, and it's fair to say it's impossible for us to sort of detail in a short period of time all the – uh, all, all the things that apparently went on. But to get a broad picture here, um, this team that was composed of, of of players who would then become the plaintiffs. And the team was from San Francisco. Right. It, right. it advanced to the final. It advanced to the World Series game. It and, finished second. Yeah, and it finished second. But on the eve of or soon, soon before the game was to be played, there was a protest filed alleging that the, the basically the team had exceeded the cap for non-openly LGBT players and that they should be disqualified. They went on to lose that game. But then after that game, a, a hearing was held, and the purpose of the hearing was basically to determine whether or not a, a group of players on that team were gay or not. And apparently what went on at this hearing was a sort of bunch of questions, some of them very personal in nature, taking place in front of as many as 25 people, uh, basically asking these gentlemen uh, all sorts of questions designed to get at whether they, they, they would qualify as gay. And I think it was a group of five or six, and those uh, who were white and who were being subject to questioning were deemed gay. And those who were men of color, in this case, were the plaintiffs. Uh, they were deemed after this hearing to be not gay and to be ex- excluded. So I think the way that the rule applied certainly seemed to have a lot to do with what was going on here. Yeah, it, it sounds like that would probably persuade NCLR that there was a, a good case to be made for the plaintiffs that they had not been treated appropriately. And in addition, that uh, perhaps uh, taking the position that gay organizations should be sensitive to issues of personal privacy and personal autonomy and the right of people to identify their own sexuality, and the idea that perhaps the uh, gay softball World Series was being a bit too narrow in defining their categories. So uh, I think it's understandable that NCLR came in on the plaintiff's side. I, I will say, though, one point I'm, I'm, I'm still not clear on when we'll get to the settlement uh, details, but one point from reading the case is I'm, I'm just not sure whether these gentlemen during the course of the litigation identified as bisexual or whether or not that was after the case. It's, it's not clear it's, to me. It's not clear from the court's opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you look at the settlement, uh, part of the settlement is that the North American Gay Amateur Athletic Alliance agrees – that uh, bisexual and transgender individuals are not excluded under this cap. That they essentially would not count towards the cap of having of of non openly right. only, only openly straight people, <laughs> people who are avowed straights. And uh, I, I imagine if there's some question, they will be called in and asked to prove that uh, they have sex with people of the other. Well, well this is what's so. The you rule know, is. I mean, know. the rule rests in some way on the on the notion that. Uh, you know, someone is not – how many people really would there be, first of all? I mean – yeah, It would be hard to find people who will admit to being openly straight these days well, in no. America. But <laughs> I, I'm it's, saying, it's just not with it. You know? I, well, it's not me, cool. Let me put it this way. I, yeah. I played on a gay softball league and I yes. guess I'm saying I would find it 
I, I wouldn't be particularly disturbed by it, but I would find it sort of um, surprising to have some of my straight friends who also play softball who'd want to play on the gay softball team. I know we have all friends, we're all friends, and we want to. But the work. gay softball league is the cool. Softball well, maybe league. that's right. But um, you know, we we have to think about the young generation coming up now who think that you know gay stuff is kind of cool. Well, I, I guess I say is there is an undercurrent of there are, and I don't express a view on it, but yeah. there's there's folks who. The, the notion maybe of even a gay softball league or LGBT softball league may be old-fashioned yeah. in a way. A little uh, given passe. Yeah. A little passe is the word I'm looking for. But I do want to ask one more question about this case, and it is about the, um, the argument the plaintiffs made, and it was based on um, the racial identity of, uh, of the plaintiffs. I mean, specifically that the plaintiffs, who were all men of color, uh, argued that the application of the rule as it, as it stood then and as it was being applied would have a disproportionate impact on men of color um, because of cultural reasons that they may be less likely to identify as gay or less likely to come out of the closet. Um, and I was, I guess I'm just wondering what you make of that argument. Well, it's, it's an interesting argument, and they said they had an expert witness who was going to come in, a sociologist, I believe, who was going to testify about this, because you can't just assert this kind of stuff in a lawsuit. And it may be the case. I mean, we've seen some uh, news reporting over the past few years about the phenomenon of the down-low mm -hmm. African-American men who uh, go out and have sex with men secretively and then go back to their girlfriends and wives during the day. Uh, I don't know whether it's, it's more characteristic of the African-American community than other communities for this phenomenon to occur. But... Uh, the court wasn't willing to indulge this argument, partly because they never brought a race discrimination suit here. He said, this case is about sexual orientation discrimination, and if you want to make it a race discrimination case, you know, you've got to go back to your administrative agency, you've got to file a race discrimination charge, you've got to exhaust your administrative remedies before you can go to court. It's a standard procedure in, in, in discrimination-type cases. Uh, so uh, in this case, nothing came of it. But it is an interesting argument to think about. It, it may have come up if the, if the settlement hadn't happened. It may have come up in the context of the only surviving claim that was still left was the issue of how the rule was applied in the context right. of that very controversial hearing. exactly yeah. protest hearing where these questions were asked. Um, just by way of background for folks who want to learn more, the NCLR's website as well as the NAGAAA, which is an acronym for the, the Gay Softball Organization, uh, the news of the settlement is on their websites. The organization has expressed regret over the way that this was handled. Uh, the, the team's second place finish has been restored, and they're still in the records, record books. And as, as Art mentioned, the policy has been revised to make clear that bisexual and transgender players will not count towards the cap, uh, limiting the amount of non-openly LGBT players on the um, on the roster. So I think we're going to leave it there for that case. We're going to take one more break, and when we return, we'll discuss a case involving anti-gay harassment and bullying at a cosmetology school excuse me, in Florida. We're back talking about the case of Rodriguez v. Alpha Institute of South Florida. Uh, this is a case featuring allegations of... Um, well, it's a virtual encyclopedia of anti-gay slurs uh, and taunts aimed at a gay student enrolled at a cosmetology school in Florida. Uh, some of those taunts included the word fairy, she-he, faggot, and queen. Uh, and the student, in response to some of this anti-gay harassment, brought claims against the school under Title IX, um, alleging sex discrimination and pervasive harassment. 
The United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida, however, granted the defendant's motion for summary judgment, ultimately ruling that most of the abusive comments detailed in the complaint pertain to sexual orientation rather than sex, and thus were not actionable. All right, let's um, pause there for a second. Can you explain to our listeners why defendants could successfully defend by pointing out that the alleged abuse was premised on sexual orientation rather than sex? Well, this is because so far we have not succeeded in getting into any of the federal civil rights statutes, whether they deal with employment, public accommodation, housing, or in this case, education, because this is Title IX is from the Higher Education Act, which uh, basically says that uh, schools, educational institutions that receive any kind of federal financial assistance may not discriminate based on sex. Uh, We haven't been able to get sexual orientation in there. So the question is whether you can use a theory that makes it into a sex discrimination claim. And the basis for that is the theory of sex stereotyping, uh, under which uh, you argue that an individual was discriminated against because of their failure to comply with sexual stereotypes, the failure to behave in a way that society considers appropriate for people of a particular gender. In this case, Mr. Rodriguez evidently had more long hair and makeup and long nails and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And so he had a plausible basis for claiming that uh, a lot of the invective that was aimed at him had to do with his appearance and his failure to conform with male gender stereotypes, which makes it a little surprising that the court came out the way they did because in, at least in the context of Title VII, at this point we have some federal appellate precedent that accepts the gender stereotyping theory. We had uh, a ruling against the Library of Congress by a federal district court in District of Columbia not so long ago involving a transgender employee who uh, was able to bring a Title VII sex discrimination claim. And uh, the 11th Circuit just last week heard argument about uh, a similar claim by a transgender former employee of the Legislative Research Service in Georgia. So, you know, this, this issue is a very live issue. How far can you stretch the concept of sex discrimination to assist people who encounter discrimination either because they're transgender or because they're gender nonconforming in some way in terms of how they speak and present themselves and groom and dress. And I think Mr. Rodriguez, from the description in the case, might have had a good case. It could be that it wasn't conceptualized with uh, enough regard to these developments by his counsel. That's a possibility. Or maybe the judge just didn't want to hear it. Well, on that latter, the latter point about the, the judge not wanting to hear it or maybe uh, – Speculating. I mean, District it, Judge Kenneth A. Mara. I I wrote about this case for yes. long notes, and and I know we corresponded about it. And I was on a personal level pretty horrified by what was described here in terms of uh, having having his note card uh, being greeted by the word faggot on one of his. I think it was a note card a or time some, card. a time card um, being called she he uh, being even a, an instructor overhearing this and, and seeming not to be very extremely vigilant, let's say, about it, how he and his tormentor basically got into a fight and the tormentor called him a faggot in front of some, in front of others. He admitted to calling him a faggot. He admitted to throwing things at him. And the plaintiff did respond with, with taunts of his own. But basically, the, the discipline was going to be probation rather than suspension or an expulsion. And I, I thought this is pretty bad stuff. And, and you seem to have the reaction that You've probably read this is a dime a dozen compared to what you've been reading about in, in well, terms all, of – all you have to do is follow the news reports over the past few years about bullying in the schools and the reaction of school administrators 
who basically say boys will be boys and stuff like well, that. Don't take it seriously, and then someone commits suicide. So, uh, you know, I think we have a social problem here in educating educators who have refused in some parts of the country, in some school districts, in some private educational institutions to take this kind of stuff seriously. Well, and, and on that point, the court, far from, from being critical of the school and, and the school administrators here, the, the court gives them sort of gives them a, applause or credit for the actions that they did take, that the probation was enough, the conversation was enough. Um, and I'm just wondering if you substituted for the word faggot, the, the equivalent in, in racial terms, which is not a word I'm going to use, but really awful words directed at someone on the basis of race or, or some other um, religion. religion, what a court might make of, 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 the, of the administrator thinking was a problem that can be sort of, you know, in this case, the, the instructor encouraged the, the person being bullied to have a sit down mm-hmm. with his tormentor as if yes. this was going to be worked out among well, the two of them. Maybe it would be. We don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, the point is the court says, I don't have jurisdiction here. This is really a sexual orientation case. Mr. Rodriguez is openly gay. The interesting thing is if Mr. Rodriguez was not openly gay, then it might be a gender identity case or it might be seen as a gender nonconforming case, a stereotyping case. But uh, it seems he was open and out, and so were some instructors at the academy. After all, it's a beauty school. Well, and, and we, we joke. a lesbian instructor. Right, that's right, and I joke who, about it in law notes, but only because the plaintiff, I think, makes the point that, you know, the kind of place he was going to school where you would expect people of varied sexual orientations and backgrounds, that I think it made it all the more painful, right. the experience, because uh, it's never okay, obviously, but you would particularly not expect this type of treatment in a place where it's a profession where there is no doubt statistically that there's a varied, you know, that the LGBT community has a serious constituency within this profession. Right. Another, another aspect of the case that's interesting is that this, uh, this school actually had a conduct code that students were supposed to sign on to and that anyone who uh, engaged in harassing or disturbing conduct was subject to discipline or termination from the school. And ultimately, it was Mr. Rodriguez who got terminated because well, he was so upset about what had happened that when he came back to school after these incidents had gone down, uh, according to uh, Ms. Kreef, who was the co-owner of the school and who was basically the on-the-spot on administrator, she said that uh, he was acting unreasonably and well, shouting and acting out, so I just terminated Well, him. and there's a lot of irony to that, right? I mean, she says that, you know, when she went to approach him, he was, he was acting out, he was loud, and he said she, she said she was fearful, yeah. which maybe she was. But <laughs> the sort of the question that begs is, well, you know, presumably our plaintiff here was pretty fearful, too, of right. what was going on. Uh, and her solution to her fear was to ensure that this student was terminated immediately. The solution with respect to the, the other tormentor uh, and, and his behavior was to encourage a sit-down, uh, place him on probation, and basically say, you know, don't do that again. In other words, it looks on his face like discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Well, you know, it, it does sound and like that's that. what the court said. <laughs> the court said that's what it is, and oh, our statute enough. doesn't cover it. Fair enough. Although I, I think, though, you, 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 you seem to be suggesting that perhaps there was a way for the court. There may have been I enough there. there. If this was a hospitable court, for whatever reason, wanted to maybe not even chart new ground, but to be able to use what's available there to, to fit this within existing And in law. fact, considering that this would, this would be within the 11th Circuit if it was appealed, uh, 
depending how the Eleventh Circuit rules on that other case that I mentioned a while ago that they heard oral argument on just in, in recent days, uh, there might be some basis for trying to appeal this uh, this uh, summary judgment. So uh, who knows? I, uh, there's no indication on the, uh, the slip opinion that we pulled off Westlaw about counsel, but one hopes that they're alert to the possibilities of appealing this. In the meantime, it's another reminder of um, where we are with respect to this kind of issue in the schools. And and why we need some leadership from the Obama administration in getting Title IX amended to include sexual orientation and gender identity expressly. Well said, Art Leonard. That was that was the view of Arthur Leonard. And yes, that is the, not the official position of legal, but I bet the board would endorse I, I, it. I think that's probably yes. right, true. But now that you've, you've waded into partisan matters, I thought reminding our viewers – Listeners, there's no viewers, would be good. Um, I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please visit us at www.le-gal.org or at the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. This and future podcasts can also be found in the iTunes store or at legal.podbean.com. And if you'd like to make a donation in support of this podcast or Lesbian and Gay Law Notes, please visit Legal and donate to the Legal Foundation. Uh, thanks again, and we hope you'll listen next time. <music>